astrology and monotheism have had a, let's call it complicated relationship through the ages, at times an open conflict and in others able to achieve something of a detente. Of the complicated reasons for this, one likely stands out. If fate or destiny are governed by forces other than God, what does this do exactly to the concept of God's sovereignty? Indeed, it can almost seem to make God's sovereignty, well, redundant. Thus, concepts like luck, fate, and destiny, they sit uneasily next to more orthodox theology. For instance, the Anglo-Saxon concept of fate, or weird, the wanderer states, weird bit full arad, fate is inescapable, resolute, steadfast even becomes our modern word for something uncanny or strange. Well, weird. Weird becomes weird. In this episode of Esoterica, we, yes, we and not some strange royal academic we, we're going to discuss the role of astrology in early Judaism and Islam. That we, you ask? Well, this episode's special because I'm joined by Esme L.K. Partridge, who will be covering astrology in Islam, especially in the thought of Al-Kindi. You may remember Esme from my episode on the Stellar Rays, where I heaped praise on her commentary on just that text. Esme is an outstanding junior scholar, and I'm thrilled to have her here on Esoterica. You can learn more about Esme and connect with her in the description below. So I'll be handling astrology in early Judaism, roughly through the Talmudic period, and Esme is going to pick up with astrology in the Islamic world. Of course, this won't be an exhaustive history, but it will hopefully prove to be a solid introduction to the discussion surrounding astrology in early Judaism and roughly from the 8th to the 14th centuries in the Islamic world. If you're interested in magic, hermetic philosophy, or mysticism, make sure to subscribe here to Esoterica. Also, if you want to support my work of making accessible, scholarly, and free videos on topics in esotericism, please consider supporting me on Patreon or with a one-time donation. Your support makes Esoterica possible, and I really deeply appreciate it. Thank you. So. I'm Dr. Justin Sledge, and welcome to Esoterica, where we explore the arcane in history, philosophy, and religion. To better understand the uneasy relationship between Judaism and astrology, indeed the phrase for paganism or idolatry in rabbinical Hebrew is avodat kochavim, or star worship, it may be helpful to get some insight into how the ancient Israelites understood the heavens and the inhabitants therein. In this worldview, it appears that there was a kind of dome called the rakia which surrounded the earth. Within that dome teemed a multitude of quasi-divine creatures that we now call angels, but early on were members of the celestial court, along with the Israelite God and his, his consort. Yeah, 
That was a that was a messy divorce. These creatures were identified with the stars, so this is the first point. The Israelites understood the stars as living creatures which could act or be worshipped from the roofs of homes. Indeed, they could even be condemned to the netherworld, or Sheol. Eventually, the stars came to be understood as a kind of heavenly army, with the Israelite god being their commander-in-chief. Indeed, the title Adonai Tzavaot indicates this rank of divine generalissimo. We even meet one of the leaders of this army as the quote, Sar Tzava Adonai, or the captain or prince of the army of Adonai, in the book of Joshua during the siege of Jericho. Of course, being an army, they do their share of fighting. In the Song of Devorah, among the earliest texts of the Hebrew Bible, this celestial army is actually engaged in hostilities against the commander of the Canaanite army. And of course, we find parallel notions in other ancient Near Eastern cultures as well. The notion of the stars as divine beings can of course be found in many texts, including the Epic of Gilgamesh. We only learn a bit about specific celestial bodies in the Hebrew Bible. The major stars and constellations probably include the Pleiades, or Kima, Aish, which may have been Ursula Mayor, or perhaps the Hyades, the Mazarot, which could have been the Pleiades or the Hyades, and Kassil, which is very likely Orion, although the word also appears in Isaiah in the plural for some reason, we're not quite sure why. I've also won if the Kessel Run, you, you know, the one that was done in less than 12 parsecs, might be related to this Hebrew term for Orion. I mean, there's Endor in the Bible, and that's also a place where some magic goes down. Oh yeah, I should also mention, if you're interested in magic in Israelite society, you want to check out the card above. I've done a whole episode about just that topic. Also, remember the word Mazarot. This may be a generic word for constellations in the Hebrew Bible, but it's primarily mentioned in the book of Job. That word's going to matter a lot more in just a bit. Just to be clear, these identifications are not quite, well, they're not certain, but there's something worth noticing about all of these stars or these star clusters. They're all typically associated with winter, and they occur in a relatively small area of the night sky. Typically, they're also mentioned in the context of rain as well, which makes sense given that the winter is the rainy season in Canaan, or Israel. Indeed, that these stars are so important in the Hebrew Bible, they're the primary ones that get mentioned, and given the fact that they all seem to do with rain, may have something to do with fertility magic or weather magic more generally. Like in many ancient languages, there's no separate Hebrew word for planet. In ancient Hebrew, there are simply stars, or kochavim. In the ancient Greek world, there are also those stars that wander, hence our word for planet, from the Greek for to wander, planestai. And of course, there are the fixed stars, so to speak, the ones that don't wander around. Of the planets, we learn of Saturn, or Kiyun, a planet long associated with Jews and Judaism, here in a Hebrew version of its Assyrian name, Kevan. Venus is also known as the Meleket Hashemayim, or the Queen of the Heavens, 
and this is typically associated with the Canaanite god Asarte or Ishtar in the wider ancient Near Eastern world. Perhaps the most famous star in the Hebrew Bible is mentioned at Isaiah 14.12 in a prophecy against the Babylonian crown, probably against Nebuchadnezzar, where that monarch is cast down from their position of power. There the monarch is termed, quote, Helel ben Shachar, or Helel, the son of the dawn. This is a very complicated literary play between being both the one that shines and the one that's cast down into the pit of the netherworld. Of course, the reference here might be to the planet Venus, but when that word was translated to Latin as, well, Lucifer or light bearer, this entire section becomes taken by Christians to describe the fall of Satan following his disastrous heavenly rebellion. So that really got out of hand. Despite being established very early on in both Egypt and Babylon, ancient Canaan and Israel more specifically seem to have imported very little in the way of astrology by the time of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE. Indeed, Israelite prophets typically mention stargazers, or Chovarehashemayim, only in connection to Babylon, or Chaldea, and mention is mostly made to mock them. Indeed, the prophet Jeremiah warns to, quote, not be terrified of the signs of the heavens, or the Otot Shemaim, as the other nations are. Of course, this is as much political as it is theological. Not that that distinction was really made in the ancient world, or are now. Despite this, astronomical knowledge would have had to have been imported in order to settle complicated issues in the Jewish calendar. In fact, these issues proved amazingly difficult, leading to various kinds of factions to adopt rival calendars, like the solar calendar described in the Book of Enoch, and perhaps the one that was adopted by the sect at Qumran and represented in many of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Indeed, an early horoscope, well, specifically a kind of astrological physiognomy, has been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves at Q186. If you're interested in these interesting calendar issues, astronomy, astrology, secret codes, and even buried treasure in the Dead Sea Scrolls, make sure to check out my episode on that topic in the card above. With the rise of the apocalyptic mode of Judaism in its vast literature, there would prove to be little room for predictive astrology. Indeed, apocalyptic Judaism was deeply deterministic, but only determined by the divine will. So we are pretty much unsurprised to see a systematic association of all forms of divination, including astrology, with the various fallen angels or the watchers in the Book of Enoch. Now, this is all a bit ironic considering that the astronomical and calendrical sections of that very same book would have been impossible without sophisticated astrological knowledge in the ancient world. This might, however, represent an early attempt on the part of Jews to separate between predictive astrology and merely descriptive astronomy, although that idea is a bit contentious. The Book of Jubilees also has Avram being called forth from his astrological observation to the worship of one singular god, thus putting these two things in a kind of juxtaposition. As Jewish mythology develops, however, Abraham actually becomes thought to have basically invented astrology, 
with all the wise men of the world coming to consult with him. Similar ideas also occur in the Talmud, and as Esme actually pointed out to me in a correspondence, they also occur in Quran Surah 6. More on this idea as we get later into the rabbinical period. This, of course, only reinforces the similar prohibitions on various, though not all, forms of divination in the Hebrew Bible. Again, it's worth driving home that the Hebrew Bible condemns certain forms of divination, apparently divination by cloud and by snake, among others. Astrology is never really mentioned, much less condemned, as one of the forms of divination. And of course, other forms of divination, like divination by the Urim and Thummim, are, well, encouraged and allowed. During the same period as the rise of apocalyptic Judaism, the Sibylline oracles also seem to commend a Jewish rejection of astrology, and Philo of Alexandria also seems to see basically nothing other than folly in this practice as we see in his text on the contemplative life. Though he does note that the twelve stones in the breastplate of the high priest represent the the entire universe, so yeah, that's not the zodiac or anything. Though it is clear that Josephus sees in the heavens portents of the destruction of the temple. So again, we have Philo, the Sibylline oracles, and Josephus all taking rather different positions on how to interpret the sky, if we should at all. The New Testament's also surprisingly silent on the practice of astrology. Though Jesus does mention in the Gospel of Luke that the apocalypse basically would be accompanied by, quote, signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And of course, no ancient reader of the Gospel of Matthew would have been surprised that Zoroastrian priests, or Magi, followed a star to the infant Messiah. Here, the writer is likely polemicizing against the Jewish rejection of the messianic character of Jesus. While the Jewish establishment has rejected him, even non-Jewish wise men could recognize the truth literally written in the heavens. Of course, the relationship of early Christianity and astrology would need to have its own episode, are 10, so stay tuned for that. Of course, with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, Judaism underwent a major innovation. Shifting away from sacrifice to prayer and learning, the major center of Jewish life was eventually shifted following the Bar Kokhba revolution of 132 to 135 to the Galilee and then to the academies of Babylonia. During this period, oral traditions were first written down, perhaps out of rabbinical fears following the genocide in Palestine. First came the Mishnah in around 200 of the Common Era, followed by the commentaries produced in both the Galilee in around 400, and then the most important Jewish text of all, second only to the Bible, the Mammoth Commentary that came to be known as the Gemara, or the Babylonian Talmud, redacted sometime between 500 or 600 of the Common Era. Of course, by this time period, Hellenistic astrology had become dominant in the region and was a highly developed system of incredible precision and nuance. For the rabbis of the major academies of Sura and Pumbedita, the question of astrology was not whether it worked or whether it was real or not. That was basically not in doubt. The question, however, was one, whether it were permissible to consult astrology at all the prohibition taking the form of 
Ein Shoalin Bakaldaim, or not consulting the Chaldeans? And two, to what degree exactly astral influence affected the people of Israel? The first question, whether or not one can consult with non-Jewish philosophers, is in some sense the easier to settle. Of course you can't. You just consult with the Jewish astrologers. Now, this question about whether the consultation of astrology at all is constitutive of consulting with the Chaldeans is going to be a huge question in the entirety of the Jewish practice of astrology in the medieval European context. But that's going to have to be a future episode. At this point, at least, the legal opinion seems to have been that while astrology had its origins with non-Jews, the practice of astrology was not forbidden to Jews. In fact, it seems like basically all the rabbis consulted with or knew something about astrology in the Talmud. After all, astrology is very much akin to something like mathematics or medicine. In fact, it intersects with both mathematics and medicine. And like other sciences, it was invented by non-Jews, but of course, widely practiced by them. That the belief in astrology was widespread and relatively orthodox is perhaps best on display in the numerous astrological mosaics and other artwork that adorn the synagogues of this period. In this period, astrologers are typically referred to in Hebrew as Chaldeim or Chaldee in Aramaic, both terms for Chaldeans, while the more mysterious term Itztagnin or Itztagniut for astrology is also common as well. The transliterated Greek terms astrologos and astrologia are also common, especially in texts produced in Palestine. While most of the Talmudic rabbis believed that astral bodies had a direct impact on earthly affairs, they were often skeptical that such complex and mysterious astral bodies and their relations were or even could be interpreted correctly. Clearly, they held that being born on certain days of the week led to certain personality characteristics and even the ruling power of a given hour could sway the tides of human fortune or psychological states. All human beings, though perhaps not all animals, are connected to a certain star, or mazal. Another opinion states that even single blades of grass have a ruling star, or mazal, that makes them grow. Now, you may remember this word from earlier in the book of Job, and indeed, mazalot becomes one of the words for constellation in Hebrew. Of course, you've probably even heard people shout mazal tov at joyous celebrations in the Jewish world, such as at weddings. Mazal literally means something like star, but more like astral influence. And the phrase likely has the sense of, may you be under the influence of a good astral power, or may you be under the influence of a good star, or more simply just, good luck. I've always appreciated the fact that when something wonderful happens in Judaism, we still say, yeah, good luck with that. I mean, it's not like the Jewish people have been through anything that may make them anxious about the future or anything. This also introduces the central debate around astrology during this period of the relationship of Judaism to that practice. If Israel had a special covenantal relationship with God, then how could astral influence intervene upon that bond? The typical attitude taken in the Talmud was, quote, Ein mazal la Israel, 
or there's no astral influence upon Israel. Though just what this means has been variously interpreted as there's just no astral influence at all, to only on Israel's collective fate, or that there is no mazal for Israel, but other nations are governed by mazal, so astrological prediction still holds, to even that mazal doesn't even bear on individual members of the Jewish people. Of course, other prominent rabbis held that the stars, well, basically determined things like wealth, profession, the amount of children one would have, various kinds of psychological traits, and various kinds of other conditions were basically fated by the mazalot. However, there does seem to be a pretty significant agreement on the idea that righteous deeds can undo even the power of the stars. Again, Ein Mazal Yisrael here means something like, if you keep faith and you perform the Torah, the power of the mazalot can somehow be annulled. Clearly, by the period of the Talmud, astrology was a well-established form of knowledge and practice, though not without some degree of legal, practical, and theological controversy. The redaction of the Talmud in Babylon in the 6th or 7th centuries is almost directly in the time period of the conquest of that region by the armies of Islam in 630s and the 640s of the Common Era. Just as Jewish astrology was basically an importation into Judaism, so too would Jewish attitudes about astrology be deeply affected by developments in Islamic philosophies in the centuries that followed. Of course, Jewish developments in astrology would continue from the Sefer Yetzirah, or the Book of Formation, composed in roughly this time period, to the philosophical and legal debates of the European Middle Ages, to the astrological magic of texts like the Sefer Raziel, though those are all topics for future episodes. While it is clear that Hellenistic astrology permeated Rabbinic Judaism, there can be no doubt that other traditions, Egyptian, Indian, and Mesopotamian astrology, all played a role as well. Of course, all of that would be taken up and largely synthesized in the Islamic world and it's to that world that I want to turn to now. Again, I'm very happy to welcome Esme Partridge onto Esoterica to cover astrology in the Islamic world between the 8th and the 14th centuries. Astrology entered the medieval Islamic world through two main channels, either directly through Greek sources encountered during the Arabic translation movement, or through Persian culture, which was encountered during the conquests. Pre-Islamic Persia had an elaborate astrological system, which was itself a confluence of Hellenic and Vedic ideas, which were imported from India into Persia under the reign of Shapur I in the 3rd century. Here they were translated into Pahlavi, Middle Persian, and from there on played a significant part in Persian society, at least at an administrative level. It was this Persian synthesis of Greek and Vedic astrology that the early Muslims first encountered when they established settlements across the Middle East. Fascinatingly, the city of Baghdad in Iraq was actually founded on a date and time determined by a Persian Jewish astrologer. Of course, Baghdad was the centre of much of early Muslim scholasticism, so even before we get into how they dialectically engaged with the art of astrology, we know that it quite literally laid the foundations for a lot of their intellectual work. A major concern of these early Muslim thinkers was how, and to what extent, could astrology be incorporated within the Islamic worldview? 
This involved not only a reconciliation of Ptolemyac technical astrology with Quranic cosmology, but also an assessment of the theological permissibility of practicing the science of the stars, known as ilm al-nujum. This is a term which initially applied to both astronomy and astrology. It was not until slightly later that debates dealing with the nuances between the two really took place. So in the 9th century, the focus was more on how could the science of the stars, broadly conceived, be metaphysically compatible with Islamic monotheism. Al-Kindi was one of the first Islamic philosophers to work in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. He wrote around 270 treatises, with quite a few of these addressing cosmological and astronomical topics. His systematization of astrology is rooted in an Aristotelian, although Neoplatonized, Aristotelian cosmology. And this is a really interesting worldview which you find in Al-Furabi, Surawadi, among a myriad of other Islamic thinkers, and essentially comes from misreadings of Plato and Aristotle during the translation movement. So, in essence, what Al-Kindi obtained from these translations was a Neoplatonized Aristotelian cosmology, which might sound quite contradictory, but it actually makes perfect sense when astrology and other arts are applied to it. So Al-Kindi based his theory of astrology particularly in Aristotelian concepts of causality. However, he was also heavily inspired by notions found in the Quran itself. Of particular significance here is Surah Al-Rahman, which is a verse praising the creation of God and how perfectly balanced and ordered the universe is. There is a line in this verse which Al-Kindi draws on in his treatises on astrology. This verse is Wal-Najam yasjudan, which means, and the stars and trees prostrate. The concept of the stars prostrating is often understood simply to mean that they bow down to God, submitting to the order of his creation. This interpretation would be justified by the fact that the Arabic verb yasjudan can denote both physically bowing down, but also obeying in a more conceptual sense. Al-Kindi raises this a slight ambiguity here and points out that the cosmological implications of this can actually go much deeper. In his treatise on the proximate agent of generation and corruption, he invokes Aristotle's four causes to explain the meaning of the celestial bodies bowing down to God. He discusses Aristotle's concept of the agent cause, which is essentially the agent in any given operation which is subservient to the final cause and allows it to come about and to be actualized. Essentially, the agent cause is what bows down and submits to the objective of the final cause. Al-Kindi explains how an agent cause can be either remote or proximate. A remote agent cause is an agent which doesn't come into direct contact with its object, while a proximate agent is one which does, which essentially operates as a medium between the two. Now this all sounds quite abstract, and if you're not familiar with Aristotle, might not really make very much sense, but thankfully Al-Kindi uses a really interesting analogy to explain how this works and what the dynamic of the proximate agent cause is. So he says that in the case of a shooter who is trying to strike a target with a bow and arrow, the shooter is a remote agent because the shooter never comes into direct contact with the object that it's trying to shoot. This is why he employs a bow and arrow. Now this bow and arrow is essentially the proximate agent cause because it allows the shooter to come into contact with the object through this medium. So it essentially allows the shooter to meet its objective of shooting the object, but through a medium which comes into contact with that object while the remote cause cannot, or the remote proximate agent rather. Al-Kindi goes on to apply this to the celestial bodies. Now for Al-Kindi, 
God is absolutely one, which is what we find in the Islamic doctrine of Tawhid. Now, for al-Kindi, as he explains in his treatise on first philosophy, if God is absolutely one, then God must have no generation and corruption. And this means that God cannot come into direct contact with that which is generating and corrupting, namely the physical world. This basically creates a sort of quasi-deist theology in which God can't actually come into contact with his creations. So he needs to employ approximate agent in order to do that, making him the remote cause. The celestial bodies take the form of this proximate agent cause because the celestial bodies can in fact have contact with the material world. So the celestial bodies take on this role of the proximate agent, whereby they act as a kind of metaphysical middle man. This allows God's final causes to be acted out in the world, but through this proximate medium. The reason that the celestial bodies make for an ideal proximate medium is that they influence the way that the four elements affect Earth. So essentially what Al-Kindi argues is that the motions of the planets are responsible for the changes in vibrations and heat and light and all of these other forces which affect how material elements change and what forms they take on. In other words, the stars and the planets mediate the unity of God, Tawhid, with the multiplicity of creation, acting as a proximate agent that allows the divinity and transcendent unity of God, which is inherently atemporal and eternal, to come into contact through approximation with that which is contingent and material. So although, of course, the stars and planets are themselves material, they are of a sort of more metaphysically perfect quality because they're closer to the eternity of God. And we can really see the Aristotelian influence here. We think about how Aristotle made the comment that the stars and the planets move out of a spiritual desire to imitate the prime mover. They do this by moving in eternal circles. So you've got this idea that the celestial bodies moving in eternal circles are about as close as you can get to the perfection of God whilst also being material. So again, we've got this idea that they conceptually mediate God and the world being the proximate agent that allows one to exert force on the other. Alkindi suggests that we can prove that the celestial bodies are a proximate agent by looking at the sun. Alkindi says that the sun and its light are essentially the proximate agents for the sustenance of life on Earth. Now, of course, this life on Earth is willed by God, but it is through the light of the sun and what that provides us with, namely health, that we can actually go and survive and that will can be actualized. So the sun in a very practical sense is that proximate agent for giving of life. And of course the sun is a celestial body. Now for Al-Kindi, the effects that the planets can give off onto humans is not just limited to heat and light. He comments that during the sun's rotation around the circle, an amount of heat, cold, moisture and dryness appear in our bodies below them at every time. Now, this also applies to more subtle psychological qualities. He says that the Earth's inhabitants receive certain types of psychological traits, manners and desires according to their general mixture of elements caused by the passing of the circle, celestial sphere, and the individual mixture of each thing subject to generation and corruption. So what this means is that all the different planets essentially give off different metaphysical vibrations or rays, as he later goes on to call them, which affect the condition of the human body and affect the ways in which it generates and corrupts and the way that the four elements within it interact. And this can all be traced to the planets, which essentially are what manipulate these elements in the first place. Now, this is compatible with the Islamic worldview in theory because it doesn't undermine the creative power of God. It maintains that God is the source of all that occurs in this world. 
The celestial bodies are merely introduced as agents which fulfil or bow down to his orders, and this explains Surah Ar-Rahman, according to Al-Kindi. The stars and planets are no more than proximate agent causes or instruments in the cosmic harmony set out by God. As Al-Kindi makes it very explicit on several occasions, they provide the order according to the Creator's will. We also find this belief held in early tasfir, that is, interpretation and commentary on the Qur'an. Commenting on verses which mention the stars and planets, the 9th century Persian scholar Al-Tabari suggested that the heavens can be understood as instruments for God's control over creation. Al-Tabari explains this through using a really vivid metaphor of chords, which express the Arabic concept of asbab, meaning causality. Al-Tabari says that there are chords all around us which connect the heavens and the material world, and these chords, he writes, are finer than hair and stronger than iron, and they are everywhere, although they are invisible. So it would seem that here Al-Tabari is alluding to quite a similar concept to Al-Kindi's, namely that the celestial bodies are responsible for causing things on Earth through manipulating subtle vibrations of heat and light and other forms of energy, which go on to affect the material constituency of all created things and therefore determine their nature. And I think this idea of ropes is really interesting, this idea of ropes and cords, because you get this really vivid understanding of God's actions being directly tied to that on the world, but nonetheless through a medium which sort of links the two states of existence together, namely eternity of God and contingency and temporality of the world below. Now, in one of his more esoteric works, Alkindi takes this complex metaphysical system a step further. In his treatise, which is often known as On the Stellar Rays, which only ever survived in Latin, not in its original Arabic, Al-Kindi goes on to say that as human beings with a fitra, that is, a divine spark within us, we can actually tap in to these stellar rays, these vibrations coming from the stars and planets, and we can actually manipulate them as proximate agents to suit our own objectives. In explaining how human beings can effectively harness the stellar rays through drawing sigils, making incantations, and even performing animal sacrifices, Alkindi is basically elaborating on essentially a system of astral magic, in which human beings are, as I say, tapping into these celestial vibrations and using them to meet their own desires and means. Now this does not necessarily compromise with Islamic monotheism, because it still asserts that the origination of these celestial rays still comes from God's will. It's simply a matter of human beings activating their own divine consciousness and divine power, essentially, to use these rays to meet their own ends. That said, the text references to things like sigils, incantations and sacrifices clearly has undertones of magical practice and what would often be known as idolatry or shirk in Islam. And for this reason, some critics have even argued that the text is actually forged and that it couldn't have possibly been written by Al-Kindi, because it seems, to, it seems to push the boundaries of orthodoxy in ways which Al-Kindi never really does before. So this is a really interesting criticism to consider. I mean, most scholars have decided that he did write it just because the style in which it is written is so distinctively Kindian. But that doesn't really explain how does this otherwise very orthodox Islamic philosopher and theologian come to this elaborate system of what's essentially astral magic. In any case, we know that Al-Kindi had some involvement with the practical art of astrology, because in his catalogue of works, we find a lost epistle addressed to his student Zanab, titled On the Secrets of Astrology, and how to teach principles of the star's actions. 
It was around the time of Abu Ma'ashir that the distinction between astronomy and astrology began to crystallise. He sought to defend the latter art, claiming that predicting the future through the activities and measurements of the celestial bodies doesn't go against the Islamic credo, but actually complements it. He's inspired by the Qur'an and its several references to seeking knowledge, for example, Lord, increase my knowledge. There is also a well-known hadith of Anas ibn Malik, according to whom the Prophet said that seeking knowledge is incumbent upon every Muslim. According to Abu Ma'ashir, applying the technical science of astronomy to predicting future events through astrology is simply an extension of this knowledge. He says that the second science, astrology, is the fruit of the first science, astronomy. Because the wise man, if he knows the quality of the movements of the spheres and the planets and their quantity, the result is that he knows what the power of those movements show and their states of the things in the world. And if he does not know what the planets signify by their movements, then the first type of the science of the stars has no result. In other words, merely observing the stars and planets is just a waste of intellection because you're only truly knowledgeable if you can seek ways to apply this knowledge to serve better ends and to improve your quality of life. And for Abu Masha, astrology is the perfect candidate for, for doing that and for applying our observational knowledge. Now, this view was not without its criticisms. Although it's generally ubiquitous among Islamic scholars that seeking knowledge is a crucial part of being Muslim, there are limits as to how far this can and should go. For example, it's important not to supersede the knowledge of God and transgress the limits of our humility as human beings. By transgressing our epistemic humility, human beings are liable to playing God and trying to imitate God's omniscience. And this is exactly why Ibn al-Qayyim, who is a 13th century Islamic legal scholar, was opposed to astrology. Now, he argued that the occult sciences, such as astrology and alchemy and other forbidden arts, are forbidden precisely because they lay claim to God's omniscience and omnipotence. Ibn Qayyim actually went as far as to deny the science of astrology itself altogether. He provided over 30 examples in total showing how the movements of the sublunar sphere have no power over worldly events. So he not only wanted to deny the legitimacy of practicing astrology as an occult art, but also the science behind it. The jurist, Ibn Taymiyyah, also rejected the practice of astrology. Although unlike Ibn Qayyim, he acknowledged that it had some scientific validity. He makes it clear though that acknowledging that the science of astrology may exist in a metaphysical way doesn't warrant practicing it as an occult science. And he says that there is a clear boundary between the two and we can understand this through a clear definition. And this definition is that the science of the stars can be of two species, computation or judgment. The issue with judgmental astrology is that it's based on the premise that the superior movements are the cause of events in the world and that knowing the cause necessarily yields the knowledge of what is caused. He says that this implies determinism outside of God's plans for the world and therefore constitutes a kind of unbelief in God's ultimate power. He summarises this in one of his legal fatwas, where he says that the belief that one of the seven stars is in charge of one's good fortune or misfortune is a corrupt belief. And if somebody believes that this planet is what administers him, he is an unbeliever. Now this would of course be refuted by Al-Kindi and Abu Ma'ashir because they both make it clear that astrology doesn't take the place of God's will but is actually completely subservient to it. In fact, for Abu Ma'ashir, the powers of the planets are so passive that even human will is more powerful than what they're capable of ordaining. 
He states that although the celestial bodies can affect man, man is actually able to subvert them. This is quite a similar premise to what we see in Alkindi's On Stellar Rays, in the sense that man still has an element of control. This notion that human beings still have a degree of control, despite something being preordained for them, is probably best understood on the terms of the Mu'tazilite theory of predeterminism and free will. According to the Mu'tazilites, God creates, and to some degree predetermines, all of the possible causes of a human life. However, these only exist potentially. They are latent possibilities, they are latent creations which don't come into actuality unless that human being chooses to do so. So it's essentially down to the will of the individual human being to actualize or manifest these latent possibilities and ultimately their direction in life. The Mu'tazilites use this famous example of wood. Within wood, there is the latent potential to become on fire. But this potentiality, of course, only becomes an actuality if an agent actually sets fire to it. So man is always capable of activating his own free will to determine which specific course his life will go down, but this course is ultimately predetermined by God, except in a latent form. The role of the stars and planets essentially doesn't go beyond the provision of these latent potentialities. They simply provide the material means for something to happen should the individual either actively do it or not go into any effort to avoid something happening. So returning to Al-Kindi, the stars and planets are only ever subservient to God's will, bowing down or submitting or prostrating to it rather than substituting it for another one or creating their own paths of determinism. As Aristotle's metaphysics makes it clear, an agent cause, be that remote or proximate, can never fulfill its own final cause or ends. It's simply subservient to another. And so in Alkindi's understanding, there is no need for astrology to necessarily compromise with monotheism, because celestial bodies at no point take the place of God, at least not in this system. However, the question of whether taking this further into an elaborate system of astral magic, as Alkindi appears to do in On the Stellar Rays, is quite contested. One has to carefully weigh up the two axioms relating to knowledge and epistemology within Islam. Where is the line between seeking knowledge and impersonating or trying to undermine God's knowledge? Does predictive astrology cross that line, or is it simply the fruit, as Abu Mashal says, of scientific astrology, which helps humans live better lives and ultimately be better Muslims? The bottom line is, of course, perhaps that God knows best. However, the debates surrounding astrology's legitimacy in the medieval Islamic world are certainly fascinating in their own right, and pertain to bigger questions in Abrahamic cosmology and theology. The wonderful thing about doing education on YouTube is that we can reach across the ether, so to speak, and really lean on each other for our respective expertise. It was wonderful hosting Esme, and I really hope to bring more scholars, junior and senior scholars, to share their knowledge as, obviously, I can't be an expert on everything in the study of esotericism. You'll find links in the description below for more on astrology and Judaism, including a really great source sheet from Safaria with primary sources in Hebrew, Aramaic, and English. I've also included Esme sources as well, so make sure to take a look at those and make sure to connect with Esme. You really want to follow her. She's going to be, and she already is, a really amazing scholar of this material. Until next time, I'm Dr. Justin Sledge, and you've been watching Esoterica, where we explore the arcane in history 
philosophy and religion.